Welcome back to the Comics Course. I am your ever-present Professor Hamby, here in my office, as always. Miskatonic University is on Christmas break. This is the best time to experience a university as a faculty member when there are no students. Frankly, they just kind of ruin the whole school experience. I can feel the love. And Rowan is here with me. I did not expect to have her here. I had planned to drop this essay-style episode because we weren't able to meet to continue talking about Sandman, and I'm dropping it here on Christmas Eve because we're going to still be closed next week, and I intend to spend most of the week exploring the limits of legal hallucinogenic substances uh, imported from Egypt for some reason in the back of olive crates. But I, but I've been assured they're all legal. I'm guessing the olives maybe act as a preservative of some kind. Either way, I'm concerned. Yep, fair. So you originally had not planned to be staying in the dorms over winter break, but I understand that your father had to unexpectedly sell the house because he invested in some Logan Paul crypto project. We don't talk about that. You don't talk about that. Yeah. Alrighty, so the essay is, Can Superman Be Black? Now, I had planned on reading this without you here, Rowan, mm -hmm. so it's not really written as a discussion, but I'd still like you to feel free to chime in your thoughts if you wish. So, Can Superman Be Black? I'm going to start this discussion by proposing another question, exploring it, and then returning to this one. My other question is, Can Thor Be Japanese? Now. Before everyone starts tipping their tables, bear with me. This is not meant to be rage bait. If your instinct is to say, this is silly, I get it. Thor is too connected to Scandi lore and culture to be seen as Asian, right? There are clear and significant differences between the phenotypical norms of the Scandi and Japanese people. However, the universe can surprise us. I may think of Sweden as a land of cute blondes skiing in bikinis largely because of advertisements in the 1980s. But, as of 2020, Statistics Sweden, which is a Swedish government agency, counted nearly 800,000 people of Asian birth in Sweden. With a population of 10.35 million in the same year, that's 7.7%. That is significant. Mm -hmm. That is a significant percentage of the total population. And I'm willing to bet that 100 years ago, it was much, much smaller. We live in an age of globalization. It's that simple. It is not new to the 20th century, much less the 21st century, and has clearly accelerated in my lifetime. Now let's talk about the year 1952. A man named Peng Cheng Kui, and I apologize to China. I'm probably slaughtering the pronunciation, but I'm trying. He was a chef to the Taiwanese president after the Chinese Civil War when Taiwan declared itself, you know, the real republic government of China. For, obviously, the Chinese government, the communist Chinese government on the mainland, had a very different opinion of it, and they still do to this day. For a visiting dignitary, this chef created a dish that he envisioned as capturing the flavors of the Hunan Chinese province and named the dish after General So Sung Tang, a hero. We today call this General So's Chicken. 
It became popular in Taiwan, but not mainland China. The chef brought it to New York, where Henry Kissinger raved about it. And soon, the recipe was copied and spread to American Chinese restaurants like Wildfire, though usually sweetened and adjusted for American palates. You can now get it at any American-style Chinese eatery in the country, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, is the dish Chinese, Taiwanese, or American? All three. Is it one dishes or two? What do you mean? Well, we have the version that was made in Taiwan and then the version adopted in the U.S. I think they're two different dishes. You feel so? Yeah, they okay. share different origins, just like how traditional Chinese food and American Chinese food are different. But you can have a whole bunch of different people make hamburgers with different ingredients in them and different mixtures of the patty, and they're all identified as a hamburger. That's because burgers have less definitions on what needs to be in a burger to be a burger. I think that's a fair observation. But you can see how people would still think of it as one dish. Yeah. And would argue that the seasoning differences are not substantial enough to make them two dishes. I can see that argument. Right. And I think these are valid points of view. So if a version that has peppers in it that originated in Mexico, even though it's a Chinese dish, is it Mexican? No. Some people would disagree. Some people think that flavors and spices that are regionally located intimately tie a dish to there. And the point is... I think that it is actually all of these things. It is American. It is Mexican. It is Taiwanese. It is Chinese. I would argue it actually is one dish, but it exists in many forms. Mm -hmm. So let us talk about Kentucky Fried Chicken. Very appropriate since it's Christmas Eve, right? Yeah. Now, people who are going, Kentucky Fried Chicken, how is that appropriate for Christmas? So, Kentucky Fried Chicken is an American fast food brand. It's expanded internationally. I know you can get it, you know, in the Middle East, Europe, all over the place. And I think now less formally known as KFC. Right. I think they actually brand themselves as KFC rather than Kentucky Fried Chicken. They rebranded in the late 90s, if I remember correctly. But just for clarity, I'm spelling it all out. And in Japan, it is seen as more of a luxury experience than in the U.S., and it is more expensive. And in Japan, they generate a third of their revenue on Christmas Day. Thanks to an advertising scheme that happened in the 70s, the Japanese have fully adopted KFC as a Christmas experience. Yeah, Kentucky for Christmas, I think, is what the ad campaign is called. Now, in this case, the dish isn't transformed. They actually serve... the. They have some additional dishes that they don't serve in America. But things like the fried chicken itself are done the same way. So it's not the dish that's transformed, but the cultural context is. The work itself is only a part of the total context and can't be consumed in isolation. When you take something, whether it's a food dish or a literary work or a mythological figure, context becomes part of its existence. How it's used, the culture it's consumed in, and the assumptions that they take to it. Because those Japanese folks now have a cultural context for KFC chicken that is totally distinct from the food itself. So, does anything ever stay the same? I think it's a legitimate question. Does any work continue to simply exist as a work? I mean, obviously, cultural context could change. You could take a song from the 1980s, 
play it now and it have a different context. Mm-hmm. Indeed, songs can have different contexts from the people who write them to those who listen to them. This can happen when the song is new. Famously, R.E.M.'s The One You Love and The Police's Every Breath You Take both mean things very different to anyone who listens to the lyrics than the people who consume them. I have been to weddings with Every Breath You Take played as the bride and groom dance song while I stood in the corner cringing. And this can happen just because of temporal shift as well, not just ignorance of lyrics. And in fact, in literature, we call this the reader's viewpoint. Can a work be read and valid on the reader's viewpoint totally separate from the author's? And that's generally assumed to, yes, be true. Which also leads us to some things that I think are kind of questionable, including 90 plus percent of all the papers of Marxist theory present in Shakespeare. So earlier this year, a musician from the 70s, I forget who it was, but a female musician who's not big and popular anymore, but certainly was a big name in her day, mocked a Beyonce song that was on the charts and doing well because it had something like 26 contributors listed on it. And this musician is a songwriter herself, and she said, how can a song have 26 contributors? Well, it was revealed that it was due to samples. The song used something like samples from a handful of songs. And each of those songs had several contributors, so you end up with this large number of contributors. We sample now. Now, some people make a big deal out of this, but I would argue that sampling is nothing more than a continuation of adoption and transformation. We simply have tools to do it in more discreet ways now in music. But this has been done in literature forever and ever, usually on a small enough scale that it's considered in the greater work an homage or a reference. It's very easy to do in cooking. And now we do it in music. And as things like visual arts tools continue to get better, we see some of it in visual art. And indeed, there are debates sometimes about to what part, to what degree is something a sample and to what degree is it theft. Mm-hmm. But the point is, it happens. Mm-hmm. We may debate about where the boundary should be, but it happens, it's going to happen, and it's called remixing. Mm-hmm. All of culture is available for remix now. And we always do it in the context of right now. Pop fads become culture when enough generations adopt the remix that passing it on is pervasive and no one thinks that it is anything more than the norm. In other words, you live with it long enough and it becomes the new normal. Mm-hmm. And just in case you think I've lost the path, all of this is still relevant to our core inside question. So, at the end of this, we carry forward three critical ideas. One, we remix. Two, we only care about the now of a new work, not where the parts of it came from. When we remix, we don't use all of it. We sample and leave things behind. So now let's return to comics, just when you thought I'd forgotten. In the early 20th century, the Japanese had what we would call comic strips, just as we did. As we approached World War II, they didn't have our comic books, but in the post-war era, American GIs had them in plenty, and the Japanese were introduced to them. Manga, as we know it now, grew out of that. 
Then, by the 1980s, Japanese comics began slowly influencing American audiences with art styles and motifs. Now, between animation, digital comics, web comics, the line is so blurred that we can't tell where comics begin and manga begins. What was regionally American-influenced ended up affecting the Japanese, and so it's all just a blender. All culture is available for remixing. From American ninjas to Kentucky Fried Christmas Chicken. So I've talked a lot to build up an argument that all culture is remixed now, and it's all one giant pool of references. There's an additional element to be addressed before we get back to Canthor Asian. And we need to talk about time. Now, we have a bad habit as human beings of thinking that what we experience in our lifetime is somehow eternal. Mm -hmm. This is absurd beyond imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no such thing. National boundaries? They're only slightly more enduring than a sitcom's ratings. Races? When I was a young man, mixed-race people were rare. Now they're common. Mm -hmm. Do you honestly think in 10,000 years that people will even look like they do now, that our phenotypes will be the same, that our cultural references will be the same, that anything will be even vaguely the same? No. So, can Thor be Asian? No, he can't today. For the same reasons we talked about at the very beginning. The Scandi and the Japanese types are too different. People cannot envision a Japanese Thor. But what about in a hundred years? I mean, a hundred years ago, you couldn't imagine a man leading our country who wasn't white. Our vision of what people can be has changed. And you say, well, that's a real person, not a mythological figure. But I would argue that somebody like the President of the United States is as mythological to the average person as a god from mythology is. But let's jump forward. 200 years? A thousand years? Could Thor be Asian in a thousand years? Absolutely. Is it inevitable? No. Is it possible? Yes. We don't know what will survive the remixes, but the idea of Thor as a generic supernatural storm figure could survive while his regional origins is lost to everybody but the scholars. This is the, assuming that the only historical record of the 21st century that survives is something more than a giant archive of TikTok. And if that is all that survives, oh well. So when a character is not controlled, it's shared, it's open to mutation and remix. Okay, okay, I hear complaints forming. This is mythology from verbal traditions and lore, not a character defined by a series of publications. So what do you mean about open to mutation and remix from being shared? Well, if you've spent any time listening to my lectures, you'll know that the more characters written and published, the less defined, not more, that they become. Certainly, if they're written by many writers over the years, which includes characters from folklore and cultural mythologies. If a single writer has a clear vision, then the character may remain consistent. Look at Nero Wolf. Over many novels, short stories, and novelas, he's kept the course under the control of Rex Stout, who owns the copyright. 
However, Kurt Swan couldn't keep Superman's powers straight one issue to the next. And once you introduce generations of storytellers in the mix, it's survival of the fittest concept out there. From Stan Lee's superhero Thor to Neil Gaiman's drunken lout Thor and Sandman. Now, tomorrow, I could write a short story claiming that Nikola Tesla is the mystic love child of Thor and introduce him as the patron saint of mad scientists. God help me, it wouldn't be the shittiest thing that ever became popular. I saw a movie trailer the other day for a Norwegian movie called Mortal, and the main character could be a scion of Thor. The movie looks good, by the way. I'm going to watch it. Speaking of remixing, I have to mention the dark side of it. That's right, folks. Stephanie Meyer's Twilight and Vampires. Now, that's a concept that has been mutilated to non-recognition, and it's only been a tad over a hundred years since Bram Stoker's Dracula. So that can happen in a hundred years. Imagine in a thousand. So to conclude the point, which I think I've successfully hammered into the ground, once you have multiple storytellers and you add the dimension of time, Ideas are very likely to change if they survive. Ideas are like genetics, mutation and survival of the fittest. The chance of them keeping what you consider defining characteristics, which none of us can anticipate or control in any way, shape, or form. If Thor is still a popular figure in the worldwide culture in a thousand years, it will require a lot of things to line up. If you think that is trivial, ask yourself, how much do you know about popular culture from Victorian times? I'll answer that. You likely know Jack and Ship, and Jack is a drunkard. I've read a lot of Victorian fiction. A lot. And honestly, you'd need to be a really hardcore academic studying their culture to have a clue. I've read a lot of Victorian fiction, and I know this incredibly tiny slice of what came through the books through the view of the writers of those books. That's it. Plus an insane amount I've read about Jack the Ripper. But is that in any way give me a comprehensive view of what Victorian life was like? No, it really doesn't. Life is so complicated. The hundred-some books I've read may sound impressive, but it's fleeting facts and the diversity of their world. A hundred years from now, the signal-to-nose ratio will be even worse. And Lord knows what social media will do of that. I mean, to return to TikTok, what the hell are historians going to think of women holding fists in front of the camera to try to get big anime titties? You've seen this, right? Yeah. I mean, this. I mean, if you have our social media to go on, historians are going to be like, this really concerned people. Although maybe they'll have memes there and have a guess. To sum it all up, we have no idea, no control, and Thor at some point will be a spokesman for a ramen brand. Molnir Goat Ramen. Like Jamaican jerk goat-style ramen. I'd try it. I would. So let's go back to our lead. I'm not going to bury it. Superman will be black. He's already been Chinese, as published by DC Comics, though it wasn't Kal-El, the real Superman, as some would say. He has also been black in an alternate universe. But there's only two real questions. Will the character be popular long enough to see the zeitgeist change necessary for people to imagine a given change? And 
a question that won't actually matter in regards to it happening. Should it? Let's talk about time first. Superman could become black as DC experiments with a character trying to find new aspects to copyright before properties introduced in 1938 become public domain in 2034. Representation is a factor here, and I'll talk more about that later, though my interest is more value-based than market sector, unlike DC's obligation to think about profit-loss statements. Once 2034 hits, Superman could be in the Avengers. He could be Latino in webcomics. It'll be on like Donkey Kong, as everyone can work with him, and as each year goes on, more and more of his mythology will become public domain. Two years later, 2036, Captain America will enter public domain. If you think comic skaters are pissed about a black Superman, wait until people are publishing homoerotic Captain America Superman novels. Hey, if the pay is right, I'll write them. No, homoeroticism is not my thing, but I live off an assistant professor's salary, and I don't have time for shame. Now notice that I don't say that one of my criteria is published by the current rights holder, DC Comics. I say mainstream. The audiences will decide what is mainstream, and once it enters public domain, could very well be somebody else. It could be Marvel Comics publishing Superman. It could be some new webcomic that could be considered the new mainstream Superman. Because currently DC is not doing that. Nope. And it doesn't have to be singly definitive. You can end up with multiple mainstream versions. We certainly see that with literary figures like Sherlock Holmes. So, should they make a black Superman? Well, when I look at this, I look at issues of purity. Three forms of purity. One is artistic purity. What was the vision of the creator? Honestly, this is one that I care about very little, but it should be considered. And if they suddenly turn Nero Wolf Latino, I'd probably jump out of my chair and be like, wait one freaking second. And Wolf will become vulnerable to this in 2030. Still, Wolf was created, and to date, shaped by one vision who has been consistent with him. The more people that have built a mythos, the less I'm inclined to give this any weight. If someone wanted to make an ethnically diverse Nero Wolf, I'd reject it. He is the child of Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler, or at least was in the author's headcanon. And I go by that. In contrast, for Superman, there's no artistic vision that's narrowly defined. He's been written by... I... More people have written Superman than sit in Congress. It's a huge number. And they disagree with each other dramatically. The next form of purity I consider is purity of enjoyment. To what degree is an audience's expectation of the character going to cause them to be pulled out of the story by a change? This is a hard one to balance, because I refuse to believe that expectations based on racist, sexist, or other ist views deserve any consideration. But the audience does matter. Now, expectation is an interesting thing, because sometimes the best thing a work can do is subvert expectations. And enjoyment can be found by a child sitting down and getting to see themselves in a character. For Superman, I think this is kind of a draw. It's a big aesthetic change on an established character, but would also be cool. 
And yes, I want a young black boy to be able to see himself in the Man of Steel. So far, my scales don't really have a lot on either side, as we consider the question of, can Superman be black? So let's look at one last form of purity, and I'm biased pretty hard on this one. Thematic purity. Now, Batman. Could Batman be black? Absolutely, I've always felt this way. Gotham is absolutely central to the character of Batman, and there is nothing to say that Gotham couldn't have a black patrician family like the Waynes. Indeed, Baltimore has a wealthy black history of families and was the basis for Gotham. Batman must be a patrician, but he doesn't have to be white. However, Superman is closely connected to Kansas. The Kents were introduced in the late 40s and since then have been central to the identity of the farm boy turned big city reporter. And indeed, these roles, the reporter, the farm boy, these were intentional points of symbolism for the creation of Superman. The farm boy being this American ideal of the wholesome, hard-working salt of the earth. The reporter being the vigilant searcher of the truth. These were stereotypes that we still possess to some degree, but when they were written, were very strong stereotypes. And just like Gotham is character to Batman, Kansas was character to Superman. The very story of moving from that small town to the big city is integral to the mythology of America in the 20th century. And Kansas, as that middle-of-America farmland, has its own character. It's not a coincidence that Dorothy from the Oz series came from Kansas. Again, purity of the American girl from the farmland. Indeed, Superman's tagline was Truth, Justice, and the American Way. By the 1960s, they'd already begun moving away from that American-centric line as he was marketed to an international audience. Most recently, it has been Truth, Justice, and a Better Tomorrow. It has had many corporate-decided iterations in between, but the truth is, as with all things in mythology, the audience determines it, not the corporation. So to many people, it continues to be Truth, Justice, and the American Way. Though not in terms of what America does do, but what America should do. Now, I'm not going to get into politics here, but that is what Superman stood for, an ideal. And Kansas represented an ideal. And is central to the fact that I have historically argued that Superman can't be black. My family is from Kansas. And let me tell you, in the 1980s, you were hard-pressed to find anyone darker than a farmer's tan in Kansas. In the 1940s, it just wasn't happening at all. The thing I don't get is I don't get why in a Superman comic, of all things, where basically everything else in reality is ignored for his powers, why the population of a state matters. It matters not for realism. That, that is a flawed assumption on your part. It has nothing to do with realism. It has to do with character, that it represented this ideal of the agricultural class who were the good salt-of-the-earth people, and it comes from a time when it was a heavy population of Europeans and those of the African diaspora were geographically heavily located in the American Southeast. So it's not about realism, it's about character. And there are plenty of places where you can see that that character is based on a reality, 
but it becomes, of course, what we call a stereotype. And that's when it becomes character, not reality-driven. Mm -hmm. And it is a stereotype, absolutely. Now, my next little part of this, uh, I invoke your name. I didn't expect you to be here when I recorded this. But as we have talked about it, I realized I had a few biases that I needed to reconsider. Now, to your generation, that motif of Kansas as the heart of America, you don't see that so much, do you? No. And that's interesting to me, and that is a generational difference, I think. Honestly, the first state of I think of when I think of America is actually New York. Well, in an international sense, that's certainly true. But I think there is a relationship to that with the decreasing presence of agriculture in our society. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, which agriculture was already decreasing in importance and had been for generations, but the generation before me that raised me saw agriculture as a major part of the economy and culture of America. Mm-hmm. And so that farmland, heartland of America was a big American ideal to them. Mm-hmm. And I fully recognize People have become more mobile. Phenotypes are more diverse. And my linking of Superman with the 1940s, well, the truth is that for people in another 20, 30 years, the 1940s will be as distant as the Victorian times are to me. And I said earlier that even though I've read a lot about Victorian times, novels set in the times, nonfiction works, I still have an extremely limited view of what it was like. And so that will be true of people thinking about the 1940s, too. If it's not already true, time has moved on. Superman's core themes haven't changed, but cultural context for them has. Remember, we remix and time moves on and things get left behind. These things that I associate with Superman because of the culture I grew up in are getting left behind. And so I have to say, increasingly it doesn't matter if Superman's black. Now, will it be weird as hell to an old man like me? Yeah, but we have generational shifts. Culture changes. And that's okay. I know that there are millions of people inspired by the ideals represented by characters like Superman and Captain America. And yeah, I think it'd be pretty cool for a kid in any nation to see themselves in the characters. And so yes, the answer I answered the question earlier of, can Superman be black? That answer is yes, no doubt about it. Do you answer the question of should he be black? Well, I'm not going to say that he absolutely must be made black, but I don't think there's any reason that he shouldn't be able to become black in people's minds now. Mm-hmm. Unless you're one of those people that think that America's really only for white people. And then I don't want you reading comics. Agreed. All right, so we're out. Okay, class is dismissed, but you are not. I have a quick info dump for you. If you want to listen to more of the podcast, we are available everywhere. We are on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, even on YouTube. Additionally, you can find me on social media, on Mastodon, Twitter, Tumblr, TikTok, I probably have a copy of the podcast on an iPod mini in a hobo's pocket in San Francisco. That's right, time travel. Do you want to know where you can find all these links? You can find them on my link tree. That is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. 
It is the comics course. And don't forget your homework.